Hi, we're back. <laughs> Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Crime with a K. My name is Kelsey. I'm your host. And today, oh my goodness. Okay, so today we have a case that's crazy, but it's not just one part. But, oh, I can't. Okay, just you have to stay till the end. This is a plot twist upon plot twist. The, the, the best plot twist there ever was. Like no one could even, you couldn't even write this stuff. So, coffee of the day. Um, so today I went to Caribou Coffee. I got a caramel iced coffee, and honestly, it didn't even need oat milk. I was gonna come home and put it in it, but I didn't need it. It was really, really good. The only thing I would say is that it's really sweet. Um, it is a cute little coffee shop. Like they have like these really cute. They're like Yeti type things, like the coolers or cozies or whatever, and they're so cute. That's like this pretty light blue with this light white and yellow writing and dark blue. It's a really cool vibe. Um, it's actually in a part of Charlotte too that's pretty quiet, so it's not like busy with the city. So I definitely want to go back and sit outside. Maybe when I get a dog, because there's a lot of people that have dogs. There's actually a lot of people that have dogs here, and like, it's kind of weird because I moved down here and I was like, oh, I kind of want a dog. And then when everyone had a dog, I was like, I kind of don't want a dog because it's honestly just mayhem. Like it, oh, no, 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 no. So I think the dog thing will be pushed out another couple years. But if I had a dog, I would go to that cafe because it was really cute. Caribou coffee. And also, so last night I watched the movie Deep Water with Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas. Armas. Okay. It was good, but I think they really missed a lot of things that they could have done better. Like, I wish somebody else watched it back that like wasn't on the cast and crew because I feel like if somebody else watched it, they would have been like, good plot, interesting strange but okay it's about a it's about um a wife who like this couple they're married ben and anna and the wife has all these affairs with these men but the husband allows it but then the men wind up dead okay right yeah good plot good weird but like great good plot but that that like the way they executed it was so poor it was just kind of strange almost like it was like it was like being forced and it didn't it was categorized as a thriller and people were like, yeah, it's kind of scary. What part? What part? I can't watch scary movies. Like I literally can't watch scary movies. So I was like, oh, I'm kind of nervous to like watch this by myself. What part was scary? None. None. And then the movie just ended and they were back in love. And I was like, I, like I kind of turned it off and was like pondering 
And I don't usually do that often with movies, but that one I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but it was, it was, it was like good. So I would suggest watching it if you have Hulu, because that's what I watched on. And then when you get up to like the hour mark, just shut it off. Cause then it's just kind of like, whatever. So now obviously jumping into what you're all here for the case. So we watched the movie or the documentary captivate audience and like the trailers for it. This was on Hulu too. No, this is on Hulu. This is on Hulu or HBO max. Mm, I think Hulu and like the trailer for it. I was like, eh, okay. And then we watched it. It was so good. And when I say so good, I really mean like so screwed up, but I wanted to cover the case that was cases that were on the show because crazy. So this is the case of Steven Stainer and um, his kidnapping and all that type of stuff. But then there's more. There's more that you guys are going to have to tune into because it just doesn't end here with a kidnapping. No, actually, honest to God, I feel so bad for this. The Steven Stainer's mom, Ken, like you're, we're going to learn all about it. But like that woman is a brick for everything that she's gone through. Like, I hope when she gets to heaven, Jesus welcomes her with open arms and says, come here, come here, baby girl, you got, <laughs> you're getting the penthouse suite for all this shit I put you through. So on the morning of December 4th, 1972 in Merced, California, seven-year-old Steven Stainer was walking home from school. It was slushy and sleety and just nasty outside because it was winter, obviously. And his mother was expecting him as he walks home from school every day. As Stephen was walking, a white Buick pulled up alongside him and a man got out. He was approached by a man named Irvin Murphy, claiming to be a representative of the church who was looking for donations and offered him some flyers that related to the church. He asked Stephen if he thought that his mother would have anything to donate, and Stephen was like, no, she didn't give me anything to donate to the church. I literally went to freaking school. But Stephen was like, well, my mom's really into into church. (laughs) She's into going to church, so she'd probably have something like to donate at her house and the man was like oh okay i'll just drive you home then and then we can check and see if she does have anything so steven knew that his mom probably wouldn't want to have him take a ride but he also knew that she would be okay giving him a ride home if he was from the church so steven stalled for a little and the man was like dude i literally work at the church as a minister and then steven was like ah okay Yeah, my mom's heavily involved in the church and the community, so I think my mom would think that that's fine. Stephen actually believed that his mom would be grateful for the man giving him a ride home in such as crummy winter weather, so Stephen naively climbed into the man's car and did not come back home for the next seven years. Stephen Stainer was born on April 18th, 1965, to Delbert and Kennedy Stainer. He was the third of five children, and he had an older brother named Carrie Stainer and three sisters. His family life was relatively normal. They were obviously a loving family. They were a working class family. And based on the show that I watched, the documentary, Kennedy was a very good mom. Like I said, she is a strong, strong woman. Like you're going to hear everything that this family goes through. And she didn't shed a single tear in that documentary. So she is really tough as nails. Delbert was a good dad too, but he was that typical 1960s dad, just a hard ass, but really means well. And Stephen was close with all of his siblings and there just weren't any signs of abuse or trauma or anything like that. So just keep that in mind for maybe another potential episode. Um, While Stephen was in the white Buick with Irvin, he was also in the vehicle with Kenneth Parnell. Parnell was the one driving and he was the one that gave the nod when the men approached Stephen walking down the street. He was a convicted sex offender. 
He had problems from an early age, and psychologists said that he really needed a lot of help. He spent years in and out of juvenile detention centers before serving three and a half years in an adult prison for lewd and lascivious behavior with a child. He also had convictions for armed robbery and impersonating a police officer. By the way, the 60s were a freaking time because the lewd and lavacious behavior with a child was sodomizing a little boy. So I don't like three years for doing that and just to like, just call it what it is. Like you just call it what it is. Parnell had convinced Irvin Murphy that he was planning on becoming a minister and needed to abduct a young boy to raise in a quote religious type deal. The two had met while working at Yosemite National Park. Hashtag PST, PST, wait, PTSD, PSTD, PTSD. And Yosemite is going to be heavily covered here. And like, oh gosh, Murphy was described by those who knew him as a simple minded, naive and trusting man. On Purnell's instruction, Murphy had been handing out religious flyers to young boys on their way home from school. Steven Stainer happened to be the only boy who agreed to help. You're going to learn to like Parnell is very manipulative. And I think like you're going to hear how many people, including Steven, were manipulated by him. And I think that that I, I just feel like he mastered that trait because all these people who had never had any previous convictions before or like had any signs of like whatever just easily manipulated were manipulated by Parnell. The two men drove by Stephen's home, and as Stephen pointed and told them, hey, that's my house, the men just continued driving. Parnell turned around and told Stephen that his parents no longer wanted him and that they'd given Stephen to them. Stephen was taken to a rented cabin in nearby Kathy's Valley. Parnell had told Stephen that he'd spoken to his parents, who said it was okay with them that he stayed the night at his house. Parnell molested Stephen the very first night and committed the first of countless sexual assaults the very next morning. Parnell then began raping Stephen 13 days later on December 17, 1972. Throughout that first week, Stephen repeatedly told Parnell that he wanted to go home and back to his family, and Parnell told him that he had been granted legal custody of him by his parents as they did not want him anymore. Parnell also convinced Stephen that his parents could not afford raising so many children and as such just didn't want him anymore. They were like, yeah, your parents had to give one of you up because they actually didn't want five children and they picked you. Okay. (laughs) The abuse escalated over the first few weeks and then continued on for many years. Stephen would often cry for his parents, cry to go home, cry for his friends, and Parnell would remind him that they are no longer there and they no longer want him and they did not want him coming home and that they'd given legal custody to Parnell. Parnell then told Stephen that he would have his name changed. Going forward, he was to be known as Dennis Parnell. In less than a month after his abduction, Stephen was enrolled in the local school under his new name. Parnell took on the role of Stephen's father and forged documents stating that he was in fact Dennis Parnell's father. Stephen Stainer no longer existed. Over the next few years, Stephen and Parnell moved around California and they would kind of move once wind would catch that Stephen Stainer had been abducted and missing, if missing persons flyers were put up, if news stations began broadcasting it, anything that was like showing Stephen's face in his disappearance, that's when Parnell would move the two of them to a new town. And honestly, it's kind of interesting because when you watch the documentary, you they interview people that Stephen you know, went to school with. So he went to school from the age seven to 14. 
that's like your growing years. And Stephen had girlfriends. He had friends. He had people come over the house. Like he had friends come over to this house and they all talked about how the houses that Parnell and Stephen would live in were these like run down shanties like these disheveled shanties and they said that parnell was like really weird like they were like you kind of got this creepy vibe from him that he was like obsessed and in love with his son which like he literally was and that i don't like like got jealous when he had a girlfriend out the, the documentary does a really good job like interviewing those people so i don't want to take away from that because i i think you should watch the documentary it's really interesting to me i was like drawn in the whole time i was like what is going on and like I don't know. And they also go through like his teachers in school and like how they didn't notice anything. And the teachers, I guess, when Stephen was found were like completely distraught because they were like, he literally was in our classes for years, years. And we had no idea that this kid was a kidnap victim being molested at home by his guardian who was like coming in and having like parent teacher conferences with us. So it's just so strange. And flyers had been sent to all the schools in the district, but were never seen at Steel Lane Elementary School where Stephen was enrolled. So this became the spot that they were going to stay and adjust and grow up. Stephen made friends at school and he was allowed to play with them and do all of the school-like type things like prom and all that type of stuff. And Parnell had a series of menial jobs and to anyone outside the home, Stephen and Parnell just looked like the father and son, just a little odd. Parnell even worked away at times, giving Stephen a chance to escape, but he never did. He believed that he had nowhere else to go, and it was ingrained into his head that he was unwanted. And also, too, like, it's not like now where you can pull out Google Maps or you, like, go to a freeway and it's like, hey, blah, blah, XX. Like, it's like the 60s, okay? This kid's in the middle of the woods in freaking California, he literally got kidnapped by getting picked up on the streets. So you think he's going to go back out and get kidnapped and pick up on the streets? No. So in the documentary, Stephen's mother, Ken, says that one day Stephen did actually escape. He made it all the way out of the cabin and kind of into the woods and up to the street. But he got really scared because he didn't know where he was or how to get home or the directions. And he didn't trust anybody. So he just sobbed kind of in the woods and then went back to the cabin because he found it to be safer there and less scary than meandering around on the streets. Parnell would continue to manipulate Stephen, keeping a fine line between complete control and total freedom. And Parnell even gave Stephen a dog, which most seven-year-olds would be so excited and so happy. But Stephen knew that it was much, much deeper than that. And he knew that Parnell was doing it to manipulate and bribe him and keep him there. Parnell allowed Stephen to live without boundaries as he knew he had completely manipulated him and that he'd remain loyal, especially after escaping and then coming back, which unfortunately that did play a role in Parnell's sentencing. So if y'all ever get kidnapped and you escape, don't turn around. Don't turn around because then that kidnapping thing goes right out the window. So we gotta, if we get kidnapped, we run. We go. We just go. Okay. We don't care where we go. We just get out of there. We got to have them get the whole entire sentence. During this time, he had grown very fond of his pet dog, Queenie, a Manchester Terrier, and Parnell's mother has given the dog to Parnell. Parnell had been with a woman named Barbara Mathias for a period of one and a half years during the time that Stephen was there. And during that time, they reportedly forced Stephen into sexual activities at least nine times with them. Matthias also helped Parnell in the abduction of another boy who was in the Santa Rosa Boys Club with um, Stephen, but the attempt was unsuccessful, so he kicked her to the curb. 
As Stephen grew up, he began to grow out of Parnell's preferential age for young boys. Ew. And he was told to go out and try to find another boy for Parnell. And Stephen would basically pretend to go out and intentionally sabotage these kidnap attempts to prevent any other child from being taken from their families and from going through all the abuse that he had to go through. So Parnell began to obviously grow angry with the lack of merchandise that Stephen was bringing home for him. So he was like, you're done. You suck at this job. So how about you bring one of your friends over, um, bring over Sean Poorman. I'm going to bribe him to help me kidnap little boys. Sean was like, yeah, that sounds like a good gig. I was actually looking for some summer work anyways. Um, So Sean Poorman helped him kidnap a little blonde boy that Parnell had had his eyes on in Yukia, California. They planned to lure the boy to the car, pretending to need assistance, and the boy was like, oh, hell nah, y'all give me the ick, and then he ran off. Parnell then screamed at Sean to, quote, get him, and Sean got out of his car and chased the boy until they reached a chain fence. Sean pried the boy's fingers from the fence as he screamed for help, and then he threw him into Parnell's car, and the two of them sped off. The little boy was Timothy White, and he was only five years old. His parents were immediately terrified because he just literally up and vanished, and no one in the neighborhood saw or heard a thing. And Stephen Stainer, like, flyers were handed out, broadcasts were made, searches were launched, but Timmy had just completely vanished, which he was in a really busy neighborhood, and he was screaming at the top of his lungs, so I don't understand how anybody didn't hear that. Actually, random story. My apartment's kind of near the highway. Yesterday, I was laying out by the pool. It was just me out there. I don't know why, like, nobody at this complex uses our pool. And all of a sudden on the highway, there was this, like, I, I've never heard an accident happen, except, like, the ones I've been in. But I was sitting there, and all of a sudden, I heard this screeching on the highway for probably a good seven seconds. Like, it was a long screech. And then just smashing and slamming. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't think I should go help. But when I was writing this yesterday, I was like, oh, it just reminded me of that. That happened earlier. Random, but there, I know what I did yesterday. Just like Parnell had done to Stephen, Timmy's identity was changed. Um, he had a new look. He was given a new name. He dyed his hair brown. He changed all his clothes. He renamed him and told him all the same lies that he told Stephen, pretty much that your parents don't want you. Your parents gave you to me. I have legal custody of you. All that jazz. This is when Stephen realized how bad things had been when he was younger, and he knew that Timmy had a real family that was truly missing him and wanting him to come home. And Timmy would spend all day, every day, crying to go home, missing his family. And Stephen made sure that he was home early from school every day so that Parnell couldn't abuse Timmy like he'd done to him. He would basically take him, put him in his room, and then keep Parnell out of there. Because at this point, Stephen's 14. Two weeks after Timmy had been abducted, both boys left Parnell's together while Parnell was working a night shift as a security worker, which go Steven because he was like, oh no, we're not having this happen round two to this kid. And I don't really understand what Parnell was securing aside from the two boys that were not his because he was working as a security worker. Like the only thing that you should be securing is yourself in prison, Parnell. So these two hitchhiked over 40 miles together to Yukia, California, to Timmy's home. Stephen often carried Timmy, who was tired and scared and crying through the rain as they tried to find Timmy's house. And I'd be like, Timmy, you need to stop crying right now. Like, we are running. You need to stop. You need to pull together. Do you want to see your parents? Because they want you back. So you better stop crying. Timmy couldn't remember where he lived and no one was home at his babysitter's house. 
So Stephen looked up the address of the local police station and they walked in there together hand in hand, which can you imagine those police, like two missing boys, one from seven years prior, just walking into the police station like, hi, hi, we're here. So they got to the police station around midnight and Stephen told Jimmy, go or Timmy, go inside and tell the policeman your name um, and the policeman will bring you home to your parents' house. Timmy was very scared. He did was like, no, bro. The last time I went and talked to a random man, I got kidnapped. So I'm not doing that. And he didn't want Steven to leave. He actually, the, the two of them had the cutest relationship. Like Timmy idolized Steven. And it was like, it wasn't even like a brother dynamic. It was like hero dynamic. He didn't want Timmy, uh, Steven to leave him. So he ran back to Steven sobbing and was like, uh, no, 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 you're coming in there with me. This is when a policeman noticed and was like, okay, this is kind of weird. So the policeman went over and approached them and the police was kind of suspicious of uh, Stephen. So he was like, can you both come inside? Because Stephen wasn't going to go in. He was like, I'm just going to give you a here and then I'm going to go home to my family. Don't know how to get there. Which also too, it kind of makes me wonder, was Stephen going back? Because he wasn't going to go in and tell those police that he was there, which like would kind of have been the easier thing to do because then you wouldn't have had to hitchhike. He would be brought home. So it makes me think that he was going to go back to Parnell's because of how manipulated and abused he'd been. But police was like, no, you're coming inside, both of you. And he made Stephen tell his story. So early the next morning on March 2nd, Kenneth Parnell was arrested on suspicion of abducting both children. Police realized he had previous convictions of sodomy, but he had never been suspected of anything because he never registered as a sex offender in California. Okay. This is like, it's, uh, I get, uh, I get so flustered. So it's really fascinating to me because it took Ted Bundy in the seventies to make the United States and pretty much the entire world say, hey, you know, just because somebody commits a crime in Wisconsin, if like you're just putting them in this Wisconsin bucket. So if they say, you know, go to New Mexico and they commit a crime there, police in New Mexico think that that's that person's first crime because we don't have this database that shares all this information of like, this person sucks and this is what they did. And even here, like this is a prime example. Kenneth Parnell sodomized a little boy in Utah and was registered as a sex offender in Utah, which doesn't make any sense to me because I'm like, did y'all not have a brain back then? Like, did you not think like, oh, well, he wouldn't go to California. He's not into California boys. He's going to only stay in Utah. No, like if somebody registers as a sex offender, they should be registered everywhere in the world, in the freaking universe. Like you should literally send a voice message to Mars and be like, hello, this person is a sex offender. Do not let them move here. Like, you know what I mean? And it's the same thing of like Ted Bundy. That's how he was able to get away with all of his crimes. And maybe I'll cover him someday. It's just so much, but he was able to commit his crimes because police departments didn't speak to one another. We're talking in this case about states they didn't even speak to each other in towns, which again was why Kenneth was able to move around from town to town to town to town to town with Stephen and put him in new schools because they weren't putting missing persons flyers up in Yukia, California when he was missing from Merced or Merced. And those two, they didn't connect. And then flyers kind of found their way down, but not really. People were like, I don't know who this kid is. Like, I don't, don't, we don't know. And so 
I just find it interesting. And Ted Bundy was really the starter of why police departments should talk to each other. And this is another prime example that I'm actually surprised hasn't been talked about in any of those cases that you read about that. Timmy was immediately returned home to his family. And it was announced on TV that Stephen Stainer returned after seven years. When he returned home to Merced, California, there was an absolute media frenzy. And he couldn't even get to his family because of the cameras and the news reporters. Like, it was an absolute madhouse. And they have scenes of that in the documentary, too. There were thousands upon thousands of people. Like, when I tell you, like, crowding him, like, he, the first time he sees his mom, he's, like, shoving his way through all these people. And so is his family. And, like, that to me, oh, that, no, no, no. Like, the police should have been like, hey, like, you guys come in, come inside here. No, the police were like, get out there. <laughs> get out there and show us what you're made of. <laughs> That's showbiz, baby. So cameras were shoved in Stephen and his family's faces. There were so many pictures taken, asked for immediate interviews. Like, the, not only did the entire community watch, but the entire country was watching this case. And Tim, uh, Stephen said, I couldn't see Timmy suffer. I just didn't think it was right for him to have to go through the same thing that I did. He really didn't have to. There was someone there who could stop it. And over the course of the two trials, Parnell's defense attorney stated that Stephen could have left at any time he wanted, but he chose not to. They said that the kidnapping occurred before California's three-year statute of limitations. Therefore, he could not be persecuted for that offense and because Stephen left. That makes no sense. I don't even know who the actually came up with the statute of limitations because it's the same thing for like specific rape cases. It happened. You committed the crime. And if you're holding the kid hostage for seven years, but your statute's only for three, I'm sorry. I guess it just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense in my brain. And prosecutors argue that Stephen was a psychological prisoner and the kidnapping was a continuous event for the entire seven years. Pretty much the judge and the court were like, but it wasn't. It wasn't because he could have left and he did leave and he went back. But it's like, again, back then they didn't think the way we think of like, well, psychologically he was manipulated as a seven-year-old boy to stay and abused. Parnell, mind you, had previously been convicted for sodomizing a young boy and armed robbery. And the court knew that. A psychologist testified that Parnell would switch between violent sexual abuse and extraordinary freedom. So he was giving them a really high high and a really low low. And Stephen was effectively brainwashed into thinking that he had no other option but to stay. He had come to believe that the life he had with his abuser was the only life that he would ever have. He didn't know his family were out there searching for them or even cared about him. Irvin Murphy, the man that Parnell had, you know, asked him to assist with kidnapping Stephen, um, he was also charged and the following summer, Kenneth Parnell was convicted of kidnapping Stephen Stainer and Timothy White. Sean Poorman, who assisted in the kidnapping of Timothy White, was also convicted and sentenced to time in a juvenile correction facility. Kenneth Parnell was not charged with the hundreds of sexual assaults that he committed against Stephen Stainer and the other boys because they had occurred outside the jurisdiction of the Mercy County prosecutor and took place outside the statute of limitations. What? The Mendocino... Mendocino County prosecutors, I'm probably butchering that, I'm very sorry, 
acting almost entirely alone, decided not to prosecute Parnell for the sexual assaults that occurred in their jurisdiction because they just didn't find it a priority and two, they didn't think that they could really get him. Kenneth Parnell was only sentenced to eight years and eight months in prison for one count of kidnapping and one year and eight months for the other. Those could have run concurrently, so he was really only sentenced for like seven years. He was sent to prison in February 1982 and released on parole in April 1985. The legislation in California surrounding kidnapping convictions has changed after this case to ensure offenders serve consecutive sentences for each offense. Stephen never truly admitted to the sexual abuse until he was in court, and once he detailed what Kenneth Parnell did to him, he was then made fun of at school and throughout the town, and people throughout the town kept talking to him about it and asking him about it. The news stations were like camped outside of his home, bringing it up every single day, and like it's actually wild to me that there's people out there well again like it's all because we exploit everything possible with no moral or rational whatever but i guess too like as a high schooler i could never imagine making fun of somebody for being sexually assaulted like that's a new kind of horrible and if like the fact that people did that is oh, it's so disgusting. And who, who are you to like, oh my God. And Stephen physically came home, but emotionally he was never really home. And privately he couldn't become whole because publicly he was always Stephen Stainer, an abduction victim, someone in the, someone who escaped this horrible person. And oh, by the way, they were creating a mini series on him. So now he was being forced into this Hollywood dynamic and Stephen also was the missing kid who was on thousands of flyers and milk cartons and miraculously returned home. So he was thought of this hero almost because then he also brought Timmy home. So he couldn't be a 15 year old kid who was home and in high school. He had to just like be on, on, on all the time and happy and loud and share his story and talk about it and go on all of these crazy talk shows and television and things like that. And Sandy Hawkins, who was a friend of his, said when he came back, he was a jolly kid, a jokester, happy-go-lucky. But that was the exterior. What was going on inside? Apparently, an awful lot of turmoil. Stephen also never got any counseling for what had happened. And again, like the 60s, like that's not really a thing. It's just kind of like, okay, it happened and we move on. And it's like, well, you have to deal with that. You have to unpack all that. Like you don't just come home and have a normal life after being trapped with this crazy abusive man for seven years. Steven Stainer, though he tried to move forward with his life, became an actual celebrity once he came home. He was on countless television shows for interviews and he really did become this like sensational icon for everyone in the country because it was such a horrible story that happens to tens of thousands of kids a year, but his turned around to have a happy ending where most cases don't. There was also a television show that over 40 million people tuned into the first night. The series was called I Know My First Name is Steven, which was initially broadcast on NBC in May that year. Mike Eccles, who wrote the manuscript for the series, later published a book with the same title in 1991. The writer of the show sat down and actually interviewed the Stainer family for hours in order to get all the details accurate. And 
in the documentary it's interesting because steven's mom ken talks about how the writer purposely makes things up exaggerates parks like he made the dad this angry abusive man in the show but in reality he wasn't he was just like a hard ass so the family they interview tons of different people in this documentary and all of them have been like we watched it like one time and it was horrible and steven was actually on the set with the kid who played him corky and they ended up becoming wicked close and the other thing is like Stephen, like I said, became the celebrity, but now it was this fake story. So all of these things in this in this series about him that weren't true in his family, and he was just like, "What the heck is happening?" But they said that he did it because he was like, "Well, I was getting a good chunk of money, and I thought it would be cool to kind of have a movie about me because I thought that the writer would be honest about what had happened, and they didn't. Like even the things that Parnell did, they were like, "Oh, we have to play it up. Like we have to make it super manipulative and super abusive." And it's just like, dude, this is like something that somebody actually went through. Like it's like his wasn't a movie. His was real life. Those are real feelings and real emotions. And they actually had the actors in the documentary reread lines from that show and be like, do you think that is a good thing to say about somebody who's been kidnapped? And like, it's crazy because the actors are like, wow, like 30 years later, what was I thinking? Like, that's so bad. It's, I'm telling you, it's so interesting. So through all this, Stephen managed to move forward with his life. He ended up meeting a woman at the butcher shop, Jody, that he worked at in the series. They said that Stephen met her at high school and they fell in love, but that just wasn't the truth. And he got married to Jody. She was 17 at the time and he was 19, I believe, or no, maybe he was 18, but they got married and they had their daughter, Ashley, and then they had their son, Stephen Stainer Jr. However, Tragedy for this family does not stop there. And on the night of September 16th, 1989, Stephen Stainer was working at a pizza hut and he was on his way home to his family. It was pouring rain. Um, and at this point, he had already joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So he was really a family man. He was trying to get back on his feet. He was trying to have a normal life and he was really eager to get home to his family and see them. And it was raining really heavily. His boss offered him the company pickup truck to save him from getting wet, but instead, fearing that he'd get in trouble for driving without a license, Stephen took his motorcycle. On his way home, a car pulled out from a side road blowing a stop sign and he collided with it. Stephen was driving below the speed limit, but he wasn't wearing a helmet because his had been stolen two months prior. He was pronounced dead at a local hospital less than an hour later. He was just 24 years old. His younger sister actually drove by the scene and saw him, but she didn't know it was him, which is to me just tragic. Like driving by, she literally said in the series, like I drove by and I was like, wow, that's such a bad accident. Like somebody passed away on their motorbike. Like that person's obviously not alive anymore. And then to get home and find out that it was your older brother, like, oh my, I cannot imagine. And he had bought the blue and white 1989 Kawasaki EX500 with a piece of the 30,000 that he received for the rights to the story of his 1972 kidnapping and astounding return. And it was shown in May as a television miniseries. I know my first name is Steven. So he got all the rights to that. Yet... 500 people attended his funeral and four days later in a church he joined not long before his death one of his pallbearers was now 14 year old timmy white and the inscription on stephen's casket read going home oh. 
Timothy had a relatively normal life because of Stephen and his bravery, and he became an L.A. County Sheriff Department's deputy. He also got married and had two children, and on April 1st, 2010, he died, aged just 35 from a pulmonary embolism. Quote, before he was kidnapped, he was just Stephen Stainer, a kid growing up in Merced. But seven years later, he became Stephen Stainer, a national figure. When he came home, his family could not have him for themselves. He had to be shared. And with all this international attention, he said, Stephen had a hard time getting his feet back on the ground. And that was said by one of his friends. People did say, too, that when he came home, they didn't really know like if he wanted to go by Dennis or Stephen because at that point he had gone seven years of his life being Stephen and seven years of his life being Dennis and those are two very different names and they said too like when he passed away they kind of weren't sure what to put on the casket because again like as crummy as it is like that is part of his identity but Stephen had written that if he were to pass away he wants to go away as Stephen Gregory Stainer so his family was really happy at that and after he got out of prison, Kenneth Parnell stayed under the radar, but in January of 2003, he tried to convince a nurse to kidnap a young boy for $500. He was sentenced to 25 years to life under California's three strikes laws for solicitation, solicitation to commit a felony. He was 72 years old. And Timothy White testified at his trial and Stephen's earlier trial transcript was also read out to the jurors so they could hear his previous crimes. Kenneth Parnell served less than four years of the sentence when he died in January 2008. Stephen's family had asked for a park to be named Steiner Park in his honor, but the council didn't accept this in fear that the community would associate the park with another Stainer, Stephen's older brother and convicted serial killer, Carrie Stainer. And that is where we are ending today's episode because it gets crazy. It gets absolutely wild. And that's what I'm saying. The plot twist at the end here and then finding out why he did it. Oh my God. Like I'm telling you, you guys bring like, maybe take like, whew, bring like a Xanax to the next episode and take that. So you're nice and relaxed because it's, it's heavy. Um, but that's it for this episode. I'm not going to give you too much because I just want to let you fester on that. And then we'll be back on Thursday with Carrie Steiner. Thank you guys so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to go watch the documentary. I think it's on Hulu, Captivate Audience, so you can see everything that happens. Don't watch it until after Thursday. And if you do, don't watch part two. Okay, we have to do this together as a team. I'm the team lead and I'm telling you just watch part one. If you want to submit a case, DM us on Instagram. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's at crime with a K. Send us a Gmail, crime with a K at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram, hello.kelsey, and follow us on YouTube, hello Kelsey. And you can watch all behind the scenes. I love you guys so much, and I will see you on Thursday. Bye bye. <laughs>